0: Welcome to another episode of Power Up, a podcast powered by Venture Taranaki and produced by Raw Collective. Here we celebrate the region's entrepreneurs with their trailblazing spirit and can-do attitude. Taranaki entrepreneurs are leaving their mark on the world, but living the famous Taranaki lifestyle. I'm your host, David Downs. Taranaki is a region where the unique natural and business environments collide to create a place where people can flourish and achieve their full potential. No mai, haidemai. we welcome you to hear our enterprising future like no other. Today's guest is James Annabelle, co-founder and CEO of Egmont Honey. Egmont Honey is a hugely successful family-run honey business run off James's family farm in the back blocks of Hawera. It started with James giving one humble beehive to his dad and has grown to export incredible amounts of honey all over the world. We talk about how James convinced his dad to go from farming to honey full time, what it takes to produce world-class manuka honey and what it's like doing business in the international markets from provincial New Zealand. He's an enthusiastic thinker who's always got something on the go, offering real insights into the unique and competitive world of honey. James's story is about making the most of your opportunities and having the courage to take on a risk for something you truly believe in.
1: So James, where have you just come from now? Uh, I've come straight from the, from the factory actually, at a factory and um, office out in Bell Block. Do the bees stop laying or whatever they do at about whatever it's called at about this time? Oh yeah, as soon as it gets cold, they go to bed. Really? Um, but um, no, we carry on. We work in sort of multiple time zones because we export to the UK, so... Fantastic. Um, stop now, but go on to phone calls later on.
0: No, so, so, James, tell me about how does a ex-rugby player, or probably still current rugby player, how does a rugby player end up owning a apiary? I, you see, I did my research. I looked up what the word is for people that make honey. You're an apiarist.
1: Apiary is the is the beekeeping side of it, but we're a beekeeper, packer, marketer, so we sort of, you know, hyped to hive to home. Right, have you always been interested in bees? Uh, no, I didn't, I didn't know anything about bees.
0: Right, so tell us the story of how you get to be a honey man. So I was,
1: over in, I was actually over in Hong Kong playing rugby um, professionally and prior to moving to Hong Kong I, um, I worked for the regional council here actually in, in land management, long story, and um, ended up meeting a beekeeper um, who knew a guy who owned a big honey company and when I went to play rugby over in Hong Kong they sort of... Connected me with him. He flew to Hong Kong to meet me. He liked me. Said I'll give you six months, sink or swim, write your own contract, which I did with quite a quite a healthy commission clause. Good on uh, you. Which didn't actually end well. So you were representing the honey up there in Asia, were you? So I, I sort of got them into um, as many um, Asian channels as I could, and eventually I kind of knew I was always going to do my own thing, so um, I actually bought my bought my father a beehive for Christmas on Trade Me.
0: Oh, nice one.
1: And um, which, you, which you shouldn't do, because with bee diseases and things, that's, that's not the way to buy them. You shouldn't transport them around the country like that. Well, you it? can, but yeah, you, you shouldn't you shouldn't buy them on Trade Me. I thought it was more that you, when you wrap them up and put it under the Christmas tree, it's a bit obvious what you got them. Yeah, well, you just put a bee suit next to it, so it's <laughs> fine. Not, not the ideal way to buy it, but anyway, from from there I left where I was working, and a month later we had 100 hives, we now have 4,000, and we sort of buy and sell honey from all over the country country as well, so we trade around, between. I think this financial year we'll do between 1,000 and, and 1,200 tonne of honey traded. Tonne of honey.
0: How many is that in little pots?
1: Just give me a little bit of a feel oh, for well that. Oh, we yeah. pack in 250, 500 and 1kg pots, so oh, oh. a fair chunk of them. So thousands and thousands of pots of honey. Yeah.
0: And where does that honey all go? Mostly into the international markets, or does
1: it stay in New Zealand? No, no, most of it's um, exported, so we're pretty well spread across around, uh-huh. 20, around 20. Is that a honey joke? Pretty well spread, yeah. So I'd see what you did there. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, you're good yeah. like that. I've
0: noticed that. Oh. Sharp. Yeah. So yeah, the international market. Now I'd imagine the reason for that is because you you're mainly manuka honey, aren't you?
1: Mostly, yeah. We do all New Zealand honey. I mean we actually do large volumes of just normal, you know, multi-floral honey into Australia, UK, places like that. But yeah. but, um, predominantly we're a, we're a manuka honey company. Yeah.
0: Well, so I know, the little I know about honey, I know that that Manuka honey is where the, is where the money is, you know, like the, particularly in the Asian markets, Manuka's obviously got health properties beyond the taste properties and and people will pay a lot of money for a high UMF. That's right,
1: yeah. Yeah. So how did you get into that bit of the market? Because you're in the premium end. Uh, well, I guess my contact started when I was in that Hong Kong position. Yeah. So um, I basically, I, I didn't know anything about honey, didn't know anything about, I mean, I was a... Um, I went to law school at Victoria University, dropped out with seven papers to go and played rugby and ended up in the in the honey sales game. So really, I just used a bit of common sense and went to every New Zealand consulate event over there and, you know, leveraged NZTE, yeah. knocked on doors. Through rugby, there's always lots of networks. So um, I met through a through rugby club, a guy who was a buyer for Walmart China, yeah. got us into Walmart China. So just, just um, knocking down doors, really. Good on you.
0: So you learnt... Kind of on the job then, and then you'd be able to take that those learnings that you had up there in Hong Kong, when you come back to New Zealand, you know, turn it to your own business, basically.
1: Basically, yeah. I did. I did it in the interim. I worked for another company called uh, Midlands Aprons, who were a little bit more corporate than than Watson and Son, the the first company, who was a family company that I worked yeah. for. So a blend of knowledge that I gained from both of them helped me set up my own business and in a way I went.
0: Just go back a little bit though, because that university thing's interesting. So you did it. You were in it. In Doing a law degree, but obviously playing a bit of a bit of a rugger on the side, and you look like you might be in you know in the front pack somewhere. Yeah, I was a, I was a hooker,
1: I was in the um, Wellington and Hurricanes Rugby Academy, so they paid my university actually. And then you yeah, left to come back here to play for Taranaki. Fantastic!
0: Talk us through that rugby career because that's you know, a lot of people for you it might be quite normal, but a lot of people dream of having a rugby career. So, obviously, you played at school.
1: Yeah, I played at school, made, made all the rep teams through sort of school, schoolboy. Went to Wellington, probably was never quite big enough to, to really hit that, that Super 15 um, rugby level, just didn't have big enough frame to, to get the weight behind me and was behind the eight ball. And then... I was over in Europe playing, actually, and I didn't get another contract here for Dunlucky, for which at the time was, was devastating, but in hindsight, it um, was probably the best thing that ever happened, because I then ended up in Hong Kong via a friend that, that had a contact there and fell into the honey industry, so it's all, all worked out pretty well. It's all well.
0: worked out well. Yeah. So then a whole other career develops in the honey industry, which is, you know, so you learn your trade up in Hong Kong, come back, work for someone, and then
1: buy your dad a hive for Christmas, so clearly you knew what you were doing when you bought that. I mean, he's a... You know, lifelong agriculture farmer. So it was a pretty easy transition for him to go from you know being a sheep and beef farmer to to being a beekeeper. Because I mean, it's, it is quite a technical role, but yeah. he had a great eye for it. You know, sort of the the working together, the full trust. Because it is a hard side of the business. The beekeeping side is a really hard side. So having him to support that initial kind of hive growth was was really important to our you know key to our success. Yeah,
0: is that why you bought it from for Christmas? So it's very self-serving by the sound of it.
1: Oh well, I mean, we were 50 50 um, right up until we sold to, to Price equity recently but you know so we co-founded it if you like so he had his set of skills i had mine and um you know they they complemented each other so it sounds like he's
0: more on the you won't call it the growing end would you what would you call it the
1: the agricultural side of the business if you like yeah and
0: again what i know about the honey industry is that the supply side is actually one of the biggest challenges for honey out of new zealand is that finding enough supply to keep the oh it has been traditionally
1: um but Not so much anymore because it's like a gold rush industry, right? Yeah. Everybody thinks you're going to be a beekeeper, so everyone dives in. And there's actually quite a bit, you know, supply, because we're very well networked and have a great supply chain, great network of beekeepers that supply us, We're, we're pretty solid for supply. So... Um, at the moment, it's not an issue for us. Even, even you know, going through the extreme growth that we are.
0: And so, you at the moment, you're still running the business, or is this that you, you said you sold the private equity? You, do you remain involved
1: though? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm um, CEO founder. It's my official title, although that has been for for quite some time. So we sold half of the business uh, three or four years ago to company um, called Go Healthy or the Better Health Company. They own Go Healthy, New Zealand's largest supplement brand um, and, and it's owned by some some private equity out of Singapore or, or predominantly but all of us founders have stayed in the business so all the founders of Go Healthy, all the founders of Egmont Honey are still very much in the business. Oh, that's a good sign. Yeah. Nice. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you how many times you've been stung. Oh, I'm a little bit allergic to bees actually so I I don't go don't out in it? the field that often. I've been stung plenty. Um, it's not, not every time, but sometimes I need an EpiPen. And a couple of years ago, the ambulance had to wait for me at the gate while we... Uh... Jeepers! So I've been stung a few times. Um, but um, I mean, the beekeepers, it's a daily occurrence for them.
0: And uh, someone tells me that you, you know, the production side of it, it must be quite a big thing, because you use helicopters for some reason in the
1: production... Most people know that Manuka grows. Well, most Kiwis um, know that Manuka grows wild um, in some of the most remote hill country of, of New Zealand. So we we chop the hives in um for a couple of reasons one from a biodiversity point of view it, it disturbs the ground much less because we're just simply oh, right. dropping the hives again. in we're not banging hives up tracks with bees on the back of trucks which could kill the queen which could affect the hive so it's, it's great for hive health great for biodiversity and health and safety wise as well it's uh, believe it or not much safer to, to chop a hives in than it is to um to bang them around on trucks and dangerous tracks yeah so. out through the back blocks of um you
0: know Back and beyond? All over the country, yeah. Wow. But it must cost a lot, though. Does it
1: add to the production side of, you know, the expense side of it? Yeah, well, it does. I mean, yeah, aviation is, is expensive. And we can only do it for, for certain grade honey, so we need to know that there's going to be a high grade of honey coming out of that block before we can justify putting helicopters in the air. But... Um, Obviously, it, um, it, it all works out from a margin point of view. Yeah, on a good year, on a bad year, you know, it's, it, it's terrible. You do all that work and you still don't get the money out yeah, of it? Yeah, absolutely. If it rains or if the, it if the doesn't flower properly, um, yeah. you, you, you make zero dollars for the year. So it's pretty intense.
0: So talk us through a little bit about that production, the quality side, because um, we mentioned UMF before, unique manuka factor. What is the difference between sort of a very low-grade, you know, put it on your toast, versus the sort of premium-grade stuff? What does it mean to you in terms of production so, and in terms of value?
1: Unique Manuka Factor is, a, is an association, Unique Manuka Honey Factor Association, something along those lines. So they're, they're an association that some people belong to, we are members of it, and uh, manuka honey is famous because it has um, antibacterial properties that are not found in any other honey, and there's a chemical marker responsible for that called methylgloxal. and so you'll often see honey rated or with an MGO score, so there's two kind of rating systems, MGO generally has really high numbers, 100, 200, 300, etc., UMF you'll see 5, 10, 15, 20. Um, both, both are meaningful. um the UMF is an association that kind of audits things so as a consumer you can you can be sure that it's a legitimate product.
0: And And what is it does it take a lot more to grow the high UMF or the high
1: methylgloxyl? It's just less plentiful. So certain manuka bushes will produce a high grade of methylgloxyl and I mean that varies from year to year, but generally we know year on year which are going to be the good blocks, so they're the ones that we'll chopper into. If it's a lower grade and it's easily accessible then we'll just drive the hives in. Okay. And then what's does it t- means in terms of value to you? Like financial returns. Well obviously the higher MGO honey, obviously, you know, better returns. But we spread right across. So we'll do we'll do close to forty well, we will do forty million in revenue this year. Oh wow. And you know, we only started the, the brand itself in, in two thousand fifteen. So we're seeing some rapid growth for our yeah. company. But we're spread right across all, all different types of honey.
0: Let's talk about the brand because the brand Egmont Honey. I mean, Egmont's obviously was the traditional name for well, it wasn't. The traditional name for Mount Taranaki was Taranaki. Then it had a while where it was called Egmont. Now it's Taranaki again. You gotta be careful here. Who was this bloke or blokeess?
1: I believe it was he was the Earl of Egmont, but um, you know I don't, I don't know huge about his. It was obviously important
0: enough that someone thought they were naming a mountain after him, and then realised it was already had a name. Yeah, so
1: so Monga Taranaki I think is is you know the correct, but. Um, where we were Egmont Honey before, um, you know, some of that controversy came about. And, um, you know, we know we're not perfect uh, being named Egmont Honey and we're looking at, at different things we can do. Um, but of course, we've got a lot of brand equity in that name and in our logo, which has the mountain on it. I mean, and we do a lot with, with local ewe and different Maori groups and we have their full support, it seems. So we're not perfect, but we're working on some things in the background to, to maybe... Be better if you like.
0: No, good on you. Oh well, I mean, I think the brand it c- encompasses many perspectives, doesn't it? And you've got the well, money. Well, that's it. it. And there.
1: I mean, you know, you can you can take that very sort of insular or, or um, tunnel view of it. But you know, what we're doing as a company is, is we're putting Taranaki on the map in, in countries all over the world. And, and we're, we're very proud of it. I and mean, you know, a lot of what we do is tell stories about our region and about our mountain and about our products. So we're very proud of the region, and we uh, it's quite exciting that we get to take it to the to the rest of the world.
0: How do those stories um, pan out? I mean, when you, in, in your brand marketing and your kind of storytelling out there in the world, you talk about proudly coming from the small part of the world and, the, you know, right at the bottom here? And what does that mean for the consumer when they kind of taste the, the taste of New Zealand?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've just talked about choppering hives into some of the, the most remote forests um, in the world. And, um, you know, we do a lot of storytelling with video. And you go into somewhere in China and you try and explain this, they can't even comprehend what you're talking about. So we use a lot of video. Got a, a series on our on our website called Meet the Manuka Makers, and that's a series. It's a five-part series of just different people that are involved in the business, from the chopper pilot to the to the farmer whose land we have hives on. To my father, you know, it's just it's understanding the people behind the brand, and then we tell a what we think is an authentic story about our region, about our product, and um, we really see the consumer buy into that all over the world, cross cultures.
0: Yeah. Because people want to be connected to their food. I think this is something about what we're seeing, a big reshift. In my day job, I work for New Zealand Trading Enterprise, so thanks for the shout-out earlier. But Mm -hmm. what we're we're really noticing is people really want healthy... Food that is good for them and good for the planet, and um, and they're much more connected to the story of the food. So the story you've got sounds like it's you know really resonates. Yep,
1: traceability is a big thing, um, and then you know the fact that our companies, you know despite the fact that we've got private equity ownership in us now, you know all of the founders are still involved right across, um, and I think that's important to the consumer as well, is that that founders mentality still still very much exists in our business. Yeah, and it was a father son business there for a while. Yeah, and I mean it's still very much is. Toby. Toby's still heavily involved. He runs the beekeeping side. I, I run the, the the whole company, if you like. Does that cause any difficulties being a family business like that? How does how does that operate? Oh, I, I think particularly early on, when you know I'd moved back from overseas, I'm very strong minded. He's very strong minded. There was flare-ups, but I mean, I think that's, whether it's family-related or not, I think there's always flare-ups. That's how you deal with those and move on from them yeah. that's, that's the important thing. And, you know, we have a, we have a great mutual for respect for, for each other and how we operate in our different ways, and, and, and it just works. That's fantastic. Do you, do you live nearby? Uh, Toby's down in Hawara, so now from here. they've um, got an apartment up here as well.
0: Good. I mean, I think that's a that's a hallmark, you know, it's obviously a market success for you. Tell me about your younger years. Was your parents, uh, were they entrepreneurial, were they business-minded? Did they kind of instil that in you
1: from an early days? Yeah, I think it probably possibly even goes back to like my grandfather's era, if you like. Our family was originally the pioneers of the, the Waitotara Valley. They cut all the manuka and all the scrub to clear it for to become sheep and bee farming. And, you know, ironically, we're, we're growing the stuff and letting it all revert. You know, my grandfather, I think he, you know, some of the farms that he took on and cleared and turned into sheep and beef farms, I mean, that was kind of a, you know, not entrepreneurial in a modern day sense, but what he was doing was pretty extreme for that era. And then, you know, Toby's also always always had sort of different business ideas and been in many businesses. So I've been exposed to, to that all my life. And I guess as a result, my mind is, is constantly, um, you know, turning over new ideas. And some of them stick, some of them don't.
0: Well, I've been told you're a bit of a wheeler dealer.
1: What are other little sort of things you got going on on the side there? Oh, a few there? things that we can't talk about. There's a couple of cool food products that um, hopefully we can launch um, early next year.
0: What was the first business you ever set up? On the kid side
1: of the road selling lemonade? No, nah, I probably used to shovel sheep shit out of the bottom of the bullshit. <laughs> and, but no, no, I started a player management business um, when I was in Germany. Oh, like show me the money? Yeah, yeah, like a, like a player's agent. You know? I was playing professional <laughs> rugby, we had nothing to do during the day, so I was like, oh, I'll set this up. And so you were managing some of the other players? Putting them into different rugby gigs around the world and... Um, sold that business to to somebody and I still got some ownership and it just ticks away but um that was probably the first proper crack at a growing up business. Yeah, nice.
0: And now that you've got the private equity involved does that give you will that give you a little bit more time to do some other entrepreneurial?
1: Uh I, I mean I was busy I've ever been and I'm I'm extremely committed to to Egmont Honey and its growth and yeah you know, and I still own shares in the in the entire group. You know, I'm still heavily invested in in the group and in the results so I wouldn't say I, I've got a whole lot of spare time but that doesn't stop my not my mind ticking over and having having things on the side. Yeah.
0: Well, you talked about doing some innovative food products, and in one of these other podcasts, we talked to Dan Ratcliffe, You might know Dan. He's a brewer, and it just strikes me that the two of you could get together and be and
1: reinvigorate mead. We did a um, honey brown ale collaboration with Shining Peak six months ago, which went really well. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Sold out. So just, there's different things we can do. We do one with Juno Gin, another another local company. So. We're quite, quite into the collabs.
0: So it's good to see the local collaboration. I mean, it's being from Taranaki an important. I mean, clearly you've you put it on your on your logo. But is it an important thing for you to be from Taranaki?
1: Yeah, I think it is. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, when we launch, well, we did launch, and we're about to launch a refresh version of our vitamin mineral sort of supplement range. But a big part of that is actually telling the Taranaki story. That that's quite an exciting thing that'll be coming to to market next year.
0: What is it about here that you like? You know, living here, being here.
1: Good question. I talk about it all the time, actually, because I spent a lot of time in in Auckland and and prior to COVID overseas. But it's always a great place to to come home to. You know, I can quite easily take the boat out, go fishing, or we can go for a hunt or head up the mountain. Not that we do that enough, but it's just got everything recreational that you need. Um, And it's great detox from from the big city when you you come back from there. So I love this place, yes.
0: You know, you've been around the world. It sounds like you've, you've been in Asia, Europe, other places, and you've come back here. So there's clearly something about this place that's pretty special for you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's just that it's just the the recreat- I mean, I know from a tourism point of view, it's a really hard thing because there's no you know billable tourist activities to do. Because yeah, all the good things the good are free, it's right? Free, so yeah. yes, yeah, it's hard to get a cruise ship to stop here because no one can make any money out of the place. But it's um, I think that's that's part of the beauty of it. Do you think your family will stay here? Yeah. Well, well, I mean personally, myself and my wife, we're building a, a house at the moment in, in New Plymouth. We're here for the long term. I can't see my family going anywhere. So, And, and you know we've got a factory here. So despite the, um, the changing ownership structure over time, um, we're very much a Taranaki company and um, we've ingrained that in our story and I don't see us going anywhere.
0: So James, what do you think is the future for the Taranaki region economically?
1: Uh, economically? Well, I mean, I guess food is where my passion is. So I'd like to think that you know, for the diverse range of food options that we have here, whether it be dairy, you know, honey, like us. Um, you know, we we're just talking about it before. You've got, you got brands like Yarrow's, um, great, great New Zealand brands. So I'd like to think it was in food, um, but I, I also recognise and respect that oil and gas is, is something that we're strong in, and I think it's something that um, the region needs as well. So, in the food front, though, it's been interesting to see
0: the, the growth of high value food products. It's not just about, you know, volume anymore, it's much
1: more like what you're doing with. With niche specialty food products. I mean, we've got great primary production, but what what excites me more is uh, yeah, putting putting that sort of secondary factory marketing um, power in behind the region. Yeah. And, and Venture Vince have done a really good job. I mean, they ran a, a stall at the um, food show last week, yeah. and um, you know had some really good Tarnacky companies there. So yeah. hopefully that continued support will um, will pay dividends in the end. So
0: essentially, you take the production side, then you think about how you're going to value add through brand, through distribution, storytelling, like you were were mentioning. So you add that all together, you get a much higher premium for your products. Absolutely, yeah. But given that most of your products are exported, is it difficult for you to have to travel internationally all the time? I mean, clearly at the moment it is with COVID, but even in normal
1: times, do you find yourself having to get on a plane a lot? Oh, yeah, Huge. And, oh, it's a love-hate thing with travel. You know, you sort of get back here for a few weeks, and you're like, right, where to next? And then you get there, and you're like, shit, I can't wait to get home. And so it's constant, you know, love-hate with travel. And it's been quite interesting with with COVID not travelling, and interestingly, it hasn't, hasn't really had an effect on the business at all. Zoom is an amazing tool. I quite often tell the story now you know if I had a meeting at, you know I had a meeting the other day with Holland and Barrett for instance if we were having that meeting in a meeting room we'd have a 20 minute slot and you'd be chased out at minute 19 by the next people coming in for a meeting and we had a meeting the other day with a with a buyer from there and He was halfway through the call and his son came back because he got a flat tyre on his bike and he goes, hold on a minute, I'm going to jump on the phone. And so he's driving his son to school while having a Zoom call with us. So you're actually getting more time with him in a more kind of relatable personal situation. So you're actually building rapport. Yeah. Um, whereas in a meeting room, um, not dissimilar to this room, you don't build a lot of rapport no, in 19 minutes. It's, looks, it's like speed dating, right? So, yeah. Um,
0: it's been it's been quite good. Yeah, I've heard a lot of New Zealand businesses say that it feels like it's levelled the playing field that we've all got the same equal opportunity
1: to connect to investors or customers or channel partners or whatever it might be. I mean, I think it's a bit hard. I mean, they, these are established relationships. Yeah. So you're building more and more rapport, but I think from a from a cold call point of view, it's it certainly you know, as soon as things are back to normal, I'll be on a plane. Put it that yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. Still very
0: important. It's important, but it sounds like you act as that bit of a bridge between the Taranaki story, which is you know a key part of your value proposition with the international market. Because you yourself are kind of an ambassador for Taranaki. Do you put on the uh, the rugby jerseys? not? And- oh, no, definitely
1: not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't don't look at it like that. But um, yeah, maybe yeah. Yeah, I would say we've just linked up with. Um, as a brand ambassador, Jimmy Gopeth, um, who's playing professional rugby in the UK, has been for years. Who was who was from Tanmaki I actually went to school with them. So, you know, it's another way of doing things is using people in market that are that are from here.
0: Do you ever think about the fact that you're you're a kid from the back blocks of Harbor or Hara as we used to call it, and yet you've got this global multinational successful company, pretty pretty out there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't sort of yeah think about it like that. But there's um, I just look at the goals that there's still to kick, and yeah. um, you know we. Uh, got a lot of shelves that I still want to put honey on. Someone also
0: told me that you're pretty good at working with other local connections and you've built relationships locally and, you know, you've got a good network here. That's obviously a key part of your success as well.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, we've got a good name in the region. So so when we advertise for jobs, we get lots of people applying and yeah. um, so we've built, a you know, a, a good name for ourselves and we've got good networks countrywide in terms of, you know, beekeeper suppliers and um, so, Yeah. So James, you must have had a couple of times where things haven't gone quite your way. Tell us about that. I don't Enough failures is, as much as they are learnings, but we we had one situation where we had a, a container of honey worth seven or eight hundred thousand head to head, head somewhere overseas, and um, one of our team forgot to do um, some of the documentation. You need a health certificate for, to get into certain markets. So just paperwork. Paperwork. Yep, paperwork. So. Um, it all ended up having to come back to New Zealand. The MPO had to vet clear it back into New Zealand. I mean, it sat, it sat on a port overseas for, you know, getting what they, I think they call it, dim, damage charges. Um, so, you know, that was quite inexpensive. You know, we had to put new containers, and so things like that are quite are you stressful. insured for stuff like that, or is that just on you? No, there was no insurance for that. We um, we did try. But, I mean, we just we just talk about it all the time. We refer it to it as the, as the roller coaster at what Honey. You know, one, one minute yeah. you're having a $700,000 whoopsie, yep. um, next minute you're getting a new piece of business with a major supermarket in Australia, you know, so you have days of the highs and lows.
0: If you count any given one of them, you know, too much or too little, then, uh, you know, you get you just got to look at the what's the trend here. Yeah. And the trend is growth overall. Well, exactly, yeah, yeah, more wins than, than losses. Where do you get advice from? Do you have a, have you had a board of directors
1: or an advisory board or mentors over the years? So, I mean, if you look at, you know, the Better Health Company, they're a big, as a group, we're, we're you know, very large and I've got you know, I've got the founders of Go Healthy, they're an extremely successful business I and mean, exit it to private equity. I sit on their board as an observer so the the um our directors fly down from well, did fly down from Singapore once a quarter. So I'm exposed to all of that. So I'm exposed to private equity. I'm I'm getting, um, I mean, I'm learning a lot that I, that I, as I say, I wouldn't have had if I'd just been solely a Taranaki, um business. So yeah, I think that's it. Gives helpful. you that wider perspective. Gives you a different perspective on things, and um, gives me a sounding board as well. If I want to ring up, you know, group CEOs in Auckland or anything like that, I can I can jump on a call and and um, and get advice from them anytime I like.
0: All right, I've got I'm going to do my uh, my my top ten rapid fire questions now. So this is. Just, just, to, just to learn a little bit more about you and Taranaki. So this is rapid fire, you can't think too much, all right. Best place to get an ice cream? Oh, it's that dairy down the
1: road that's on TripAdvisor, isn't it? What's your best surf spot? I've got a surfboard that's never been used. But... <laughs> so your garage then <laughs> is the best spot. <laughs> yeah, my garage is where the surfboard is. All right, best late night location? Ooh, shiny Peak, I'm off. Yeah, straight after this, so <laughs> okay, right let's okay. get these questions out
0: of the yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. Uh, best lunchtime activity? Um, Shining Peak. Again? Okay, good. Right, I can see a pattern emerging. Favourite beach?
1: Good question.
0: Uh, back Beach. Back Beach. That's good, because my wife, she told me that everyone would say Back Beach, and that's good. All right, if you were going up the mountain, and it sounds like you do, do you go north side, Stratford side, or you head straight for the rangers?
1: Uh, we go up the Dawson Falls side, actually, up to the Wilkies Pools and... Um, and we swim in the under Dawson Falls
0: Nice Favourite summit Sharks Tooth Fanny or Paratutu
1: mm, Paratutu is the only one I've done Okay gosh well add these to your list then
0: uh, Best annual event in town Do enjoy Womad. And okay finally when you were at school and your school assignment was to write a poem about the mountain what was one word you would use to describe the mountain Rugged Oh well, that's a good word You're a bit rugged yourself <laughs> Look I mean Thank you so much for, um, for all your wisdom. It's amazing to hear a story of such success, you know, from so... I have to say, it's a little unlikely, you know, a rugby player, failed lawyer turned rugby player turned, you know, beekeeping slash making. You know, you seem to exude
1: success. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a good story. It's been an exciting ride. And, and like I say, there's, there's, there's so many um, unkicked balls that I, uh, you know, have in the system for eating my honey. So hopefully the exciting ride continues. I can see it. Well, good luck to you on that journey, my friend. Kia kaha. Cheers.
0: Thanks so much for listening, and a special thanks to Venture Taranaki for making this all happen. I'm sure some of you listening will be guests on this show one day. So if that is you, make sure you check out Venture Taranaki's Power Up website and get in touch with one of the team. No matter where you're at on your enterprise journey, Venture Taranaki is able to support you and help you power up your idea, your existing enterprise, or your startup. They offer awesome services such as one on one startup clinics, mentoring, workshops, business and investment advisor support. This podcast has been proudly produced in Taranaki by Raw Collective. And lastly, please review and subscribe. It helps others find us. Kakite.